It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. If you're anything like me, you have a love-hate relationship with marketing. Marketing can be delightful, obnoxious, or somewhere in between depending on content and context. Most of us remember an ad from our youth that has given us a lifelong emotional connection to a brand or product. Most of us also remember that obnoxious sales call or email campaign that made us swear never to buy from the offending company again. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, you will learn from Ikechi Okoronkwo why data-driven marketers have a leg up when it comes to designing and executing impactful campaigns that hit the right audiences and create delight. Ikechi is Executive Director, Managing Partner, and Head of Business Intelligence and Analytics at Mindshare. Mindshare is a global media and marketing agency and part of global marketing powerhouse Group M. Listen to this episode to learn what Ikechi sees as the biggest opportunities in data-driven marketing, what kinds of data is needed to take advantage of these opportunities, and how to collect it. How Ikechi and colleagues use data and analytics to distinguish between rational and emotional reactions to advertising and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Ikechi. Ikechi Okoronkwo, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is so good to have you on the show today. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am very excited about this episode because we are going to be talking about something that's interested me for many, many years, but I've never quite had the opportunity to be exposed to it on the other side of the fence, which is marketing analytics from an agency's point of view. And it's really a fascinating world of of how we use analytics to optimize the way that we market to advertise to, to people around the world. And you are a true expert in this field, so we look forward to hearing from you. But before I put too many words in your mouth, you have a very interesting and varied background. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background and what you do? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, after I finished my undergraduate studies, I knew I wanted to work. Well, before I finished, I I really knew I wanted to work in a, a data-driven field. I've always been drawn to storytelling. 
But I also realized that being a quant and using numbers to paint a picture is, is quite effective because people always like proof points to justify the things that you're doing. So I worked in a couple of different areas. So I, I worked for a um, the New York Academy of Medicine. So I did a research program to help improve certain parts of you know, New York City. And it worked for the Clean Needles program where we were mapping out different parts of the city to help improve the program and how they distributed services. So that was a really cool first kind of foray into you know, research and using it for something tangible and meaningful. I also worked in, financial, in the financial industry. I worked for Standard & Poor's. And then I reached a point where I decided I needed to do something different. I wanted to use the, you know, the knowledge that I had or the knowledge I was accumulating in a more creative and bigger way. And I was always drawn to the advertising industry. So I went back and got my, my MBA, my master's. And through that, I got exposed to different types of methodologies to do the work that I, you know, that I was doing. And, you know, there was a really important inflection point in my career, which was a case competition that happened uh, towards the end of my, my MBA degree. Uh, and I was working a different thing doing different things during my MBA, but, you know, there was a case competition where we were brought in to analyze Super Bowl buzz and use that to make decisions. And it was something that I hadn't done at that scale. You know, we, I was introduced to the Group M network through that competition. And, you know, that experiential learning um, opportunity really helped me fall in love with the advertising industry and how we can use data to power insights and decision-making. So for me, my team won, so that helped in terms of inspiration and motivation. But going to work at Group M, getting exposed to the different agencies and you know creative agencies and content and innovation teams and all the different things that we can do all together bringing it together for clients has really been an interesting journey and something that I really value so you know I think it wasn't a straight line it's not something I knew I always wanted to do but I think that all those different pieces of creativity data innovation and culture I, th- I think is really important too you know advertising really drives culture and so those are all the things that I kind of latched onto as I formed my journey in, in this field. So you mentioned here Group M and uh, you work for Mindshare today, I can reveal, which is a subsidiary of, of Group M. So, so this case competition led you to be employed by Group M. Is that what happened at that time? Yeah, that's correct. So they had a partnership with Pace University, which is my, my alma mater for my uh, my MBA program. And they put on this competition. We There were four teams of four students per team. And the whole point was to evaluate how we approached the problem they put in front of us, the case they put in front of us, and the teams that did really well. So the winning teams and then individuals on, on those teams were brought in for interviews and a bunch of us secured roles within Group M. And, you know, I spent the first couple of years at Group M before I moved over to Mindshare to start the advanced analytics practice there, um, or to grow the advanced analytics practice there. And it was a really great opportunity. And we've continued doing that, actually. So uh, in my capacity at Mindshare, we ever since we did that competition, while I was at Group M, and then when I moved to Mindshare, we kept doing the competition, we expanded to different schools. Um, So we now work with Columbia, Baruch, Fordham. We've continued to work at Pace. We've expanded to other schools that are not as close to the city, like Simon Business School. And we've hired tons of really talented individuals from these programs. So it's something I'm very passionate about and I think is is a really important tool for recruitment as well as community outreach, especially when it comes to data and analytics. 
because the nature of the work that we do requires some level of showing your work in a, in a certain setting. And I think it's important for analysts to not just believe that they're sort of back office building models and then handing it off to somebody else. The most impactful strategists are those who can understand, deeply understand the data and the work that's being done and then tell stories and, and inspire and advise and persuade. So, you know, I can talk for hours about experiential learning and case competitions because it's something that I've personally benefited from early in my career. And I've seen how it's been a, a very valuable tool for others throughout my, my role when I'm on the other side of the fence, giving people that opportunity. Yeah, maybe let's not talk about it for hours, but uh, let's indulge ourselves <laughs> a little bit because I also have experienced that type of learning environment, case competition as a university student many years ago. And I really valued the opportunity to turn theory into practice, but also show that I could do things that weren't necessarily uh, what, what the book said at the university. And, and at the same time for the, the companies involved, it's such a great opportunity to identify those very creative thinkers that uh, are otherwise hard to really pick out of uh, piles of resumes and so on. What is it that is so valuable in case competitions that you've seen and experienced in your career that has made you such a proponent of them? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's many things, but if I can really zero in on what the core value or the interesting thing that makes it stand out from other things, I think it's the ability for people to show different sides of their competency. And what I mean by that is it's one event, you know, it's a, it's a case competition, it's a presentation, but it's multi-layered in terms of the information you extract from it. So let me explain what I mean by that. So, you know, let's say you give people 24 hours in a hackathon approach, or you give them two weeks to come up with the solution, the quality of the deliverable during the presentation, you can tell a lot about the people, the team dynamics, their thought process from that one meeting. When it, you mentioned, you know, people coming up with creative ideas and practical application, it tells you another story of, okay, if I was to work with this person, here's how their output would look. When you're in an interview, for example, people are telling you what they can do, you know, telling a story about themselves in a case competition, they're showing you and telling you. And I think also a case competition is really important because in an interview, for example, you're asking someone a question and they're responding. You can give them potentially a case on the spot, but a case competition, you're really very specifically asking them for things that are important and giving them time to work on it, which is how, which represents the actual real world. So when we talk about practical application, it's a much more practical evaluation tool, whether it's to see who's a star performer, whether it's to, if you're using it for an interview standpoint, or even for the person on the other side of it, they can extract more from themselves through that approach to, through a case competition. So, you know, it's, it's, the answer is it's many things, but I think that the, the way I'll crystallize it is it is a multiplier effect. The case competition tells you so many different things just from that one activity. And I think that it, we can talk about this as a separate topic, but I think it's also something that's going to revolutionize how we think about talent acquisition and, and how we think about the interview process. Because to be honest with you, the people that we found through the case competitions, it was, an, it was a no-brainer. Everything that we were trying to extract from the interview was all right there and then. And when you're also trying to do it at scale, a case competition, you can have, let's say, four teams of four students each versus... An interview, which you know you have to do multiple to get to sixteen people, 
you know, with a case competition, you do it all in one shot. So, you know, I can, you know, there's a lot of things, but I would say it's, it's just multivaried output, I would say is the most valuable thing of a case competition. Absolutely. I can only concur with all those points, both as a former participant in case competitions, but also a, a hire of many analytics talents. It is very hard to get to that detail without actually some sort of applied example. Now, Ikechi, let's get back to you and the, the topic of today, which is data-driven marketing. So we heard that you started at Mindshare and today you are the executive director, managing partner and head of business intelligence and analytics at Mindshare. So you've obviously risen in the ranks in the organization. Could you tell us about the company and your role there and perhaps what kinds of problems you solve for your customers? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Mindshare is a global media agency network. As you, know, as you mentioned, it's part of the Group M network as well as the WPP network. So there's a, many different companies. And as an agency, we kind of bring all of those things together as a full service offering for clients. So we're talking about strategy, planning, trading and investment, content partnerships, account leadership. But really where we differentiate ourselves is our specialized services. So this are things like dynamic creative optimization, technology consulting, and then where I work, which is data and analytics. And, you know, especially for Mindshare, we recently just completed a merger with Neo, And that's really just to kind of like enhance our performance chops. And so the reason why I'm bringing that up is, you know, everything that we do, we're trying to add like data-driven empirical evidence for clients, especially clients who are looking for, you know, really kind of hardcore performance and, and proof points. And, our, you know, part of our branding is driving good growth. So it's not just about driving growth for companies, but it's doing it in a socially responsible way. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, you know, throughout this conversation. You know, another thing is we also have a neuro lab. So we use neuroscience as well to look at different signals and, and metrics that we can evaluate to optimize our clients' investment. So when you think about my role in the organization, my role in the organization is to make sure that when we're thinking about the people, the process, and the products that we use to take data and extract value from it, you know, I'm really part of making sure that that is a rational, scalable, and effective system. So my stock in trade is I'm an advanced analyst. So, you know, I'm a model builder using uh, different programming languages to clean the data model the data and visualize it. But the, my role has evolved now where I'm really kind of a business developer, right? So I'm, I'm, we're developing a commercial model in an organizational, an operating model to make sure that multiple people can extract value, right? Because in a lot of organizations, they just kind of hire smart folks, expensive smart data scientists, but sometimes they end up kind of hitting the wall and and there's no vision and the, the work that they do is not always very closely tied to the mission of the organization. So sometimes people say, oh, we don't, we, we're just going to use creativity. We don't need data because, you know, but the reality is when that system is properly built and well informed by all the other parts of the organization, it really can extract tons of value. And, you know, I'm proud of Mindshare that they've really taken that seriously, both from investing in the tools and technology to be able to do that effectively. But also really, it's a buzzword. People say that because they think they're supposed to. But if it becomes a culture that is embedded in the way we make decisions, then we can do that better for clients, right? So those, those folks who act or, you know, pantomime being data-driven, their clients are not really going to see that value. But for those of us who kind of like organize ourselves intentionally to make sure that when we are analyzing a client brief, 
okay, what historical data are we using to, number one, kind of pull out the right kind of themes? How are we translating that into setting budgets? How are we translating that into measurement on an ongoing basis? How are we using that to you know, quantify attribution and then use that to optimize the things that we're currently doing and then you know, test and learn, rinse and repeat? You know, all of those things require a very kind of stable organization and intentional setup to do effectively and also to work with the very complex MarTech and AdTech ecosystem that we're operating in. So, you know, I'm helping to navigate that. I think the things I'm focusing on a lot on, you know, just making sure that our, our data kind of layer is properly managed from a data governance standpoint, and then using advances in AI and machine learning to extract value from the data and, and to automate that process and make it more efficient and to be an enabler of the system rather than just some new shiny object. I think it's quite flashy. I think it's really quite exciting. People don't always think of data and, and analytics as the most exciting part of the organization because it does require a lot of detail and process that sometimes is not the most fun. But once you get through all the fundamentals, that's when the fun starts, right? When, when you have all these things set up, when you have the right data layer, when you have the right tools, then your creativity is limitless. So I think we're at that point now at Mindshare. There's been a lot of hard work and maybe the fun, you know, not, not the fun part to set things up. But now, I mean, we're rocking and rolling and I can, you know, I can talk about a couple examples as well, but I'll, I'll kind of stop there for a second. Yeah, let's walk through how you get from data to insight to strategic implementation of various campaigns and so on. So I'm interested, Ikechi, in what kind of data you collect. I am sitting here imagining you getting some from third-party platforms, Google uh, AdWords, et cetera, some from your clients, and some did you generate in-house. What is that data landscape that you, you have in the different assets that you combine to get your insights. Could you talk us through that maybe with an example or two? Yeah, sure. So as you can imagine, we there's so much data to collect when it comes to marketing, specifically because we're working in so many platforms. And all of those platforms, you know, you have hundreds of metrics and those metrics are being recorded every second, every minute, right? So there's so much data. So, you know, an example is from our buying platforms. We have data from you know, our spend reconciliation platforms. We have data from different websites that our clients use to communicate to consumers. We have data from measurement partners, right? So partners who are able to tag the media or you know, provide services to measure attention, to measure reach, to do sales lift, brand lifts. So you know, I'll just lump measurement partners in one big bucket. We have data from a variety of vendors who help us to understand identity. So that's not even talking about the client's data. So the clients have their own first party data, which is more data around the consumers. And that can take many different shapes, you know, shapes and forms. But you know, an example I'll use of a very valuable data asset we have is Choreograph. And so Choreograph is, is a Group M um, organization that allows us to collect data from various third parties, which gives us a, a, you know, a view, of, just using the US for an example, you know, 270 million consumers. And we're able to understand their behaviors, understand their buying patterns. But I have to point out doing this in a very privacy compliant and socially responsible way. There's been a lot of news recently about data vendors that are not following very ethical approaches. You know, we, are, we take that very seriously. And due to our scale, you know, we're really also influencing the industry to do that as well. So we don't use certain data sets. 
because at the end of the day, we don't want to be in the business of making money or making value in a way that hurts the culture, hurts the society. You know, we can do that in a way that makes advertising work better for people. And so due to our scale, we can make those decisions. And I think it's something that we would do anyway, either way. But that's an example of a data asset that's really powerful because now what you can do is you can use that to stitch with clients' first party data and create a more nuanced view of the consumer. And then what you can do with that is things like propensity analysis to understand people's probability to churn, people's probability to buy different products, people's probability to consume different types of media in different places. So you can deliver creative assets in the right moments of receptivity or at the right point of purchase. So there's a lot of um, possibilities of how that data can be used. You know, That's a tangible example. But from the agency standpoint, we have so much data around the media activity and spend. And really, those are the kind of the, what I would call the independent factors, the independent variables that you're using, because you know, you're measuring the probability for something to happen, or you're measuring it against sales. And so what we're optimizing is how we spend and how we, where we place it, and then what the impact will be, and then we can optimize, right? So a lot of the independent factors or data that we have as an agency, you know, because we are the investment arm for clients in terms of media. So we're talking here, data that's being used to attributes, using attribution modeling, perhaps to attribute different uh, advertising spend, marketing activity to specific sales or uh, trends in sales. Is that the sort of scenario that you're uh, describing here? Yeah, I would say what the modeling does is it unlocks your ability to make data-driven decisions around things like budget optimization, things like performance simulations. So for example... You can scenario plan to say with this media plan, let's say you have different comms objectives, drive awareness, drive consideration, and drive conversion, right? Let's just say the conversion event is sales. You can use these models to quantify attribution against each of those different outcomes and then be able to run optimizations to say, okay, with different levels of spend, different media mixes, different tactical approaches, how do we affect each of those outcomes, So some clients will come to us to just really drive one outcome. But as a large media agency, we are usually answering full funnel types of questions for clients. So it's it's a spectrum across the, it's across the brand demand spectrum. And so the way to think about it is, okay, they give us money. They're like, okay, where should I invest it? We use these models to help them understand that. They ask us, okay, where's my next best dollar spent? Okay, we can help you answer that. And then it's like, all right, now that we've done that, is it efficient? We can help you answer if it's efficient. They're asking, okay, well, we want to increase our sales by X percent. How do we do that? How should we invest to do that? Okay, we can help you answer that. Then, oh, we have a portfolio of products and we have a set budget. How do I organize my investments across my portfolio of products and minimize risk in terms of my my business objectives, whether that's profitability or whether that's a certain product for a certain segment? Oh, we can help you answer that. Can we look at this at a granular audience level? Yes, we can. We can use the, da- the right type of data and the right models to be able to quantify it at that granularity. Can we manage our reach and frequency effectively across all these questions that we just answered? Yes, absolutely. We can do that. So it gets very complex, but there's very simple, tangible questions that our clients have. And you know, I spoke a lot about the infrastructure that we've set up. I don't want to make it seem like we're just jumping to the most complex things where we're looking at identity, person-level analytics, no, we're, some of these questions from clients are quite straightforward. It's what should my budget be for the next year? What should my budget be for this campaign? And that's a very simple answer if you're set up the right way. 
can be quite complicated if you're not. And then you're just making guesses, you know, doing napkin math. But if you have the right sort of ecosystem in place, then you can answer those simple questions and help clients build towards the more complex ones, which involve answering multiple learning agenda questions simultaneously. And then also talking about how those answers influence other questions, so to speak. Got it. Very interesting. You talk about here uh, different types of data sets, and there is an element here of the rational consumer behavior, and then there is the emotional reaction to advertising. What kind of data and techniques do you use to optimize for both of these sorts of dimensions? It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Yeah. So for the more rational side, I would say that, you know, those techniques are more ubiquitous. So we're talking about things like marketing modeling on top of aggregate data. If we want to get a little bit more granular, you can use machine learning with both categorical and continuous variables. So numbers on a time series fashion, as well as individual variables of consumers, such as their demographic information or different actions they took at different points in time, like contextual information. And you can use that to kind of form a mathematical simulation of, okay, with these consumers, you know, there was this much spend put in market, they took these actions. We can quantify what drove that. So quantify attribution or quantify relationship with, you know, certain things that happened, certain levers that were pulled. And so that's a much more rational sort of system that I think accounts for the bulk of the work that we do. But there's the other side of things, which is understanding why people take actions, right? Now that's the holy grail. And it's not always very clear. And so in order to understand the why people take those actions, you have to measure different things. So you have to measure the their emotional state, right? So you have to measure things such as how does this certain creatives or certain content or context of content make them feel. And so this is, you know, social listening. This is looking at like sentiment analysis and and really kind of using that all together to create new metrics, right? New signals that can be used in conjunction with the more rational. When I say rational, I mean just things that are pretty deterministic in terms of this happened and then that happened because humans are complex, right? And so you use similar methodologies, right? I would say the Machine learning is is used much more with some of the other, you know, the more emotional data sets because the data there is not as clean. It's not as continuous as it is with like sales over time or something like that, right? So you're looking at different audiences. You're looking at, you know, for those audiences, you maybe have five to 15 different metrics that of their emotional state or needs at different points in time. So you need something that's like decision tree analysis to help classify and categorize all of that to make sense of it, and then pair that with more, you know, regression-based kind of straightforward approaches. And then what you can do there is you can build probabilistic simulations. And so what you're basically saying is, okay, I took this action, I invested this much, I have a certain comms objective, and here is how it affects their consideration or affects the, you know, the way they feel about certain things. 
And then also have information around some sort of data point to say, okay, if you invest this much across this tactic, what's the probability to purchase or probability to take an action? And you can simulate all of this in the same system and draw linkages between those two things. And so it's that balance that we're looking to strike. I think that we have pretty good approaches for that. It would require a lot of explanation to really get into the nitty gritty of it. But the way I would summarize it is really kind of balancing across those two things and making sure that when we're making recommendations, we're not just being pigeonholed to things that we're seeing, which we, we need to try and get to a hidden layer, another layer of why certain things are happening. I think that's just good analytics, good science, right? You're always sort of questioning what you've measured and trying to replicate the experiment in different ways. And part of Good science is new data points, new information, or recording the information in different ways. So that's something that I would say is is of a particular interest for the industry um, to solve for in a in a very scalable way. You know, I mentioned Choregraph and some of the other data assets that we we have access to, and for example, we have a Neurolab where we have people come in and we're setting them up with you know emotional valence calculators or things that quantify their emotional valence when they see different things. And that's something that we're very interested in, in embedding into the way we uh, advise clients to optimize their media plans and look at different outcomes, not just, oh, just did this drive sales? Because as we all know, organizations have more than one mission and they come to us with you know trying to get understanding of different outcomes. And we want to make sure that we're addressing all of those things at the same time. Yeah. So talk to us about this neural lab. How does that work in practice? What are the typical use cases for it? And how have you seen it really, I suppose, change things up and create results for clients? Yeah. I mean, a typical use case is obviously with creative testing, right? And so usually when in the industry, when you create a, you build a new creative, you have to bring people into a room, show them the asset, get some questions, and then put it into the marketplace based on that. Now that's very expensive, time-consuming, and not the most scalable approach. But with the Neurolab, what you can do is you can bring people in and show them different elements of a creative, whether constructed in one place or separate, and kind of measure you know things that humans can't see. Measure those their responses to these different things, and then what you do is you use that to extrapolate to on a you know take that training data and extrapolate to a you know a larger data set. And so that way you can simulate or predict how certain creative assets would work in certain contexts. Because it's not just about the asset itself, it's about where the asset is or what type of asset, you know, a display ad versus a video versus 15 seconds versus 30 seconds. And at what point in, you know, the, the time of a video, does it crescendo at 15 seconds or does it take five seconds? You know, all of these very granular things, you know, the way I've seen this data really help is using that to scale and, and do things faster and be able to potentially come up with new things through like, for example, dynamic creative optimization, right? So based on in the past, you know, something would happen and then you would go back and figure out how to make an adjustment. But with this data set, we can very quickly say, these are the things that you need to do. These are the changes you need to make. Some of them may be subtle, others might be wholesale, but you know, it's human beings are much slower at making those decisions. And so I think the marriage between humans and robots or machines to create, you know, to make those adjustments is quite valuable. Yeah. And I'm sitting here imagining the complexities that you go through with clients that come with quite large budgets, but also big hopes for what their campaigns might result in. And they might've made 
promises are close to it at the other end with the, their executives and they don't want to take risks and take chances and sort of experiment their way to success. So a neural lab like that is really a way to test hypotheses before you, you put in market, uh, I assume, as well. Are there any other ways that you, you do hypothesis testing before you really push campaigns out? Yeah, I would say one of the most important ways that we test hypotheses is through predictions, data that is available to us. And the question becomes, okay, how do we use that to validate an idea, right? Because everybody can have an idea. If, if I try this, I feel, or I believe this will happen. So the best way to really kind of test that out is to measure as much as you can historically and predict what is likely to happen and measure that and look at the actual versus predicted over time. And so that way, when you have a new hypothesis, you can reference those benchmarks and sort of use that to sort of validate your hypothesis. You know, but I think that obviously once you're putting, you know, if it's something that's completely net new that hasn't been done before, that's where you, you do need things like A-B tests to, to, to measure incrementality. You know, the output of an A-B test is, is not something that you can fuel into a scenario plan, but it really does help to help, you know, to make really quick understandings of, okay, we made this adjustment and we're looking at these different markets or these different audiences and we can parse out incrementality from that. So I'd say a culture of experimentation is very important when it comes to media and marketing, because there's a lot of new things and new platforms and new approaches that are coming out every week. <laughs> and so we can only rely on historical data, but I would say that the most scalable type of approach is being able to use machine learning, use AI to measure what has been done before to create proxies for new things. That's something that we, we do a lot, right? So if you're launching a new vehicle, let's say you're an automotive company and you have an SUV and you have a sedan and you're going to launch a, a compact vehicle that is potentially in between the two, rather than just say, hey, let's not build any analysis or plans and let's just wait and see what happens. I mean, for companies that are investing millions of dollars, you can't really do that. And so using the historical measurement to create proxies and then in very small pieces of time, validate that predictive proxy that you put in place. And then over time, you're actually you're collecting real data, you're using your proxy data, you know, synthetic data, I would call it as well. And then you build from there. Because I always tell clients, you know, if you're looking to analysis or analytics for certainty, then I think you have mismanaged expectations because that's not what it's there for. It's really kind of a tool. It's like a fork, like a spoon. You know, you, you kind of use it and, and just kind of figure it out as we go along. No one really knows anything for sure, but what we can do is use these tools to demystify the unknown as, as best as possible. And then, you know, try and get that feedback from what we're doing as quickly as possible and then implement that into improving our understanding. So if we're looking for something to really just tell us exactly what happened, that's basically impossible because there's so many variables. Like we just talked about consumer behavior. There's emotional variables. There's how that person felt that morning. You know, their baby might've been crying all night and they didn't get some good sleep. And then they took a certain action, but we would say, oh, it's because they're the part of this demographic that they made that decision. That's not necessarily true. Could, could be, but maybe not necessarily. So it's the same concept when you're looking at modeling and analysis, you, you really have to just approach it with an experimental mindset and try different approaches and really not just have one approach. And you know the reason I bring that up is we have some clients or some partners who would say, we don't trust anything but A-B tests because that's how you can get true incrementality. I'm like, all right, well, great. But then that's an awfully restrictive approach <laughs> to making decisions. And I would argue 
it's contextual in nature. And that incrementality, you could say, okay, I feel within a certain degree of confidence that this is the reason why it happened because of the really rigorous test that I set up. But then it's like, okay, so can you tell me how I can use that to make another decision? And you can only use it for a use case that's that's very specific scenario versus what I'm talking about with creating synthetic data and proxies. You need other types of analysis, like things that give you response curves, because then those response curves can be adjusted and, and used for scenario planning in ways that you know, an A-B test can't. Ikechi, I, w- I want to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there, specifically around uh, experimentation and measurement, because I think whether you are in an in-house analytics function or as you are in an agency, one of the challenges that we all face is, is this challenge of, uh, as you said, analytics not being an exact science, but sometimes the expectation is that it's that. And at the same time, as analysts, as scientists, we want to necessarily experiment and iterate to get the signal out and then respond to that signal that the data gives us and, and then get better and better. That's not always the case when you have the counterparty, the stakeholder there, whether it's a client or an in-house stakeholder, they want results now. How do you create this acceptance of those two dimensions, namely that things aren't certain and that experimentation is actually needed and measurement, right? So those two go hand in hand, the control experiment. How do you, when you have a difficult client that doesn't necessarily appreciate that, how do you turn them around? Yeah, that is a really good question and something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, right? Because especially in our world that's increasingly digital, speed is a really critical competitive advantage and need. People are like, I need to make quick decisions, right? But that's really at odds with the scientific method because the scientific method really says, no, let's take some time, make some observations and make incremental sort of kind of like reads, right? To, to say, okay, whether something works or doesn't work or use that to influence decision-making. So I think as a analyst, you're really trying to reconcile across those two things that seem a conflict, right? And there's a tension between those two things. So I think that a really important approach that people need to take as analysts with navigating that scenario, or I would say, or helping them to manage expectations is to create a kind of like an outcomes framework, right? Say, what exactly are we trying to answer? What decisions are we trying to make? And really trying to help clients understand, based on this decision that you need to make, this is the metric that we're looking at. This is the KPI that we're looking at. These are the metrics that affect that KPI that we know about. And based on that, that is the first level of constraint with being able to give you an answer, right? Now, then from there, what you can do is you can then say, and now here are the tools or approaches available to us to sit on top of that data and provide you with an output. And based on that, here's what you can expect. So I think what tends to happen is people jump into solutions first. So the client's like, I want to make data-driven decisions. And someone's like, you know what? You need multi-touch attribution. That's what you need. Or you need, you know, you need to create a dashboard. And a lot of clients jump straight to doing that. And they don't really focus more on like, what's my learning agenda question? Like what decision am I actually trying to make? What data do I need to make that decision? What questions do I need to answer to make? You know, you need to map out that framework. So it's kind of like a weird answer I give people, especially when I talk at schools and they say, I tell them the most important part of analytics is not even in the modeling itself. It's that upfront consultative work and good analytics lives or dies by that. Without that sort of qualitative exercise, 
to really map out and categorize, number one, the levers that we need to pull, the questions associated with those levers, the metrics, and then the tools, everything else becomes a bunch of noise because there's a fundamental distrust for, not distrust, but there's, it's a murky thing. You know, people are like, are you going to build me a model that's going to tell me what to do? And you had to really kind of educate them to say, that's not really exactly what we're doing. What we're doing is we're making sense of what's available to us and using very straightforward scientific methods, which is the way the entire physical universe has been built to make sense of it and then extract information to answer those questions. And so when you're building analysis that's very uniquely focused on like specifically answering the question, that's when you can really have some, some value. Now, a really important thing to, to build on top of that is understanding the metrics that matter. So a lot of times folks will say, let me get all the information. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to throw it all together and I'm going to make some sense of it. And I, and I usually tell people that's not the right way to, that's not the right way to approach it. Because if you want to make quick decisions, for example, the best way to do that is look at leading indicators. And so you do analysis to quantify leading indicators across the levers that you can pull. And that's how you make faster decisions. Right, Because for example, sometimes that metric, that success metric that you're looking at may not be recorded on as much of a consistent basis as as you would like. So what you do then is you look at other fast-moving metrics, create some causation or correlation to that metric, and then use those to make faster decisions. Now, as an analyst, I would always caution people to say, don't make decisions off of something with a small sample size. So again, you shouldn't be just looking at things hourly, daily, and then just like kind of having a knee-jerk reaction to something that you saw pop up in your dashboard. You should do analysis again to understand the right cadence for decision-making off of the insights that you're getting from that fast-moving data, right? So to kind of summarize what I'm saying, you know, the the most important thing is developing a, a framework to categorize what you're trying to do to elevate and manage expectations. And then from there, find leading indicators or do leading indicator analysis to help service faster moving decisions as you wait for the larger data or analysis to come in, which gives you more confidence because just it's just the fact that things that take more time, that move a little bit slower, that have a, a multiple layers of validation, those things give you more confidence. And then, you know, the last thing I would say is scenario planning and, and simulation is the most effective way to, uh, to help clients like that, right? People who are saying, I can't wait for that. You know, what can I do today? Well, then that's why we need to build models and analysis that allows us to quantify the attribution or, uh, you know, a mathematical connection to between, let's say, media and sales. And then what you're doing is if you need to make a quick decision, you use that model to simulate what will happen. So based on level of spend, based on the media mix, based on the synergy of, of variables, this is what I think will happen. So then you use that to make those faster decisions. And then you refresh your models when new data comes in, append new data to your data set, build a new model, get a, a new read, and then rinse and repeat and continue that, that cadence. The, the mistake that people make is not investing in doing that type of analysis foundationally. And then what happens is when the question comes, now we're scrambling to figure out how to answer the question. But if you have that stable, consistent approach, then when those curveballs come, you're ready for them. It just becomes part of the process. And again, analytics becomes more of a, a culture than a definitive kind of answer, right? It's, it's something that's more embedded into just like continuous decision-making. Yeah, so the directional message that the analytics is sending rather than it being 
a true be all and end all answer is really critical for stakeholders to understand. It is directional, and then we can become more and more certain about that direction, of course, as we get better. But you talk about speed a lot. The, the speed is often traded off with the level of certainty that you can or cannot give. The other element to it there is, uh, as you also alluded to, there is a big chance if you don't plan up front enough that you spend a lot of time coming up with brilliant answers to the wrong questions. And that is uh, probably even more of a waste of time than anything else. Now, Ikechi, I'm interested. This was really helpful. And I think your, your explanation there was really pointy, actually, um, and, and very helpful for listeners. I want to step away from this a little bit and take a helicopter view of data-driven marketing. And I want to know from you, what do you see as the biggest opportunities in data-driven marketing and why? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest opportunity in data-driven marketing and you know, speaking specifically as someone in a media agency is we really need to establish analysis that can connect media actions to outcomes. There's a lot of analysis that can be done against intermediary metrics. So, so we can look at things such as reach, we can look at things such as some engagement metrics, and all of that's really important. I spoke about leading indicators. Those things are, are really valuable. But and more analysis that is tying the levers that we pull to the business value of the client that you're working with, I think that that is the most important thing. It's a very important thing to do. And it needs to come closer together. Because what happens a lot of times is that analysis is treated almost as a separate need. It's something that happens afterwards. Yeah, we'll do some attribution. We'll, you know, somebody will come in and a consultant will tell us about the contribution of what we're doing to our, our KPI and give us our ROIs, right? And this is a fixation on ROIs. I understand the, the need for that, but I think if most of your measurement is focused on things that are not around driving outcomes then what you're doing is you're not linking it directly to, for example, the things that the business is going to be looking at to evaluate whether you should continue doing what you're doing. And so for what I've seen, the clients that really excel are clients that understand that, yes, understanding ROI at a high level is important, but I need to be able to make sure that I'm linking all the very tactical things that I'm doing to that. I'm not just doing the analysis at a very high level, I'm really making sure that I can tie almost everything that I'm doing at a very granular level to an outcome. And that is valuable for marketers because now you can justify your budgets a lot better. You can, for example, go into a conversation and say, okay, these are the creative ideas that we have. These are the new partners that we want to work with. And here's how it's going to drive value for the business. Here's you know kind of the business benefit it's going to drive. And if the analysis for the way we develop ideas and execute media is done linked to outcomes, that is much more impactful. Because in the past, what will happen is if you just have that high-level ROI analysis, there's no direct link for, you know, let's say the consumer or the audience of that conversation. They're just kind of like, yeah, I know that we did this measurement at this high level, but like, how is this thing that we're talking about today connected to that? If your measurement is not set up that way, there's a disintermediated conversation that's happening because you're trying to tell them, no, I'm telling you media is impactful. And you may even have like a high-level proof point for that, but then it's not tied to the specific thing you're talking about that day or that specific sort of creative idea or that specific tactical shift. And so I think that that's the biggest opportunity is to more have more outcome-driven performance 
marketing. And then from there, it just really becomes an exercise in getting the right data, right? Making sure that we record the right data to facilitate doing that and use the right methods. You know, everything I'm talking about, if you're going to be doing that at a very granular level with very large data sets, that's why you need machine learning, right? We can't rely on the aggregate approaches of the past. I know cookies are going away, but there are other data sets that can be used to do this type of analysis. And and the more investment and more focus on that will really kind of empower the truly modern-driven marketer, especially in the platform age, where the platforms we're using, the data we're getting are just going to explode in volume and complexity. And so outcome-driven measurement in that ecosystem is going to help people to make better decisions and win and be more persuasive, retain their budgets. And it's not even just about retaining your budgets. It's really about driving growth for the business and like quantifying that and being able to speak to it rationally rather than hypothetically. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Yeah, and I think the, the whole idea of quantification is something that has been a huge beneficiary and also to some extent a huge challenge for the marketing profession over the last, say, 15, 20 years. Because if you look back further than that, so we're back now around the turn of the century, people will put out marketing, branding activity, advertising, and so on, uh, but it's not directly measurable, uh, not easily at least. What is the value of a billboard or 30-second TV commercial? But uh, with the advent of things like Google advertising, uh, Facebook, all those platforms where you can literally measure the value of each click and who clicked on it and what demographics you get and all that. All of a sudden, marketing is so quantifiable for those channels, but the old channels uh, still, to, to some extent, uh, are, are stuck in a, a paradigm of you, you can't be exactly sure who looked at that billboard on the side of the road. And that challenge of justifying the stuff you can't measure versus the stuff you can really measure very detailed, that must be a constant tension that you're, you're battling with, as in, why should we invest in a TV advertising? Because we can't say that it delivered X, Y, Z. Whereas if we target these 200 search terms on, on a, in a search engine, then we know exactly what we paid for them by the click and so on. How do you navigate that with clients and how do you justify the different channels? How do you help them justify it, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about outcome-driven measurement, because to your point, there are certain platforms or certain types of digital investment channels where you can deterministically link what happened exactly to you know ROI. And so if you're only looking at that to make decisions, that is somewhat siloed. And then to your point, you can't talk about your full funnel holistic media mix. So, but if you're doing measurement that can allow you to quantify, you know, from the traditional channels, I'm using air quotes, the traditional channels as well as the digital channels, instead of looking at ROI, then what you're looking at is marginal ROI. Because the reality is that ROI on the digital platform, it's not the uh, fairly attributed because we all know that these things work together. And so if you're doing using measurement that doesn't incorporate all of those levers in the same system, to some degree, you are not getting the full picture. And as I said before, that's not necessarily a horrible thing. I'm not saying that people who are looking at website analytics and you know ROI from different platforms are doing it wrong. I'm just saying it's just one part of the picture. And you know, we talked about modeling not necessarily being 
absolute certainty. But if you want something that is more certain, more predictable, you need to take a bird's eye view and incorporate everything that you're looking at and use marginal ROI, not ROI, marginal ROI to make a decision about your next best dollar spend. So that allows you to now not get into this tension between digital and traditional. It's all media. It's all marketing, right? A lot of times we hear sometimes some people talk about performance media. And, you know, I would argue that all media is performance, <laughs> just, just looking at different outcomes potentially. And in some situations, you're looking at the same outcome, right? You invest in, in TV for awareness, but, you know, ultimately you do want it to help you drive sales. <laughs> you, you expect that, right? Um, now, the, the question might be some things might have a longer tail impact than others, and that's fine. You just need to be able to balance those things together. And there's very straightforward methodologies to do that. We just need to kind of all understand that and develop the foundational trust to do that work up front. Because what it, what is it, what it entails is a culture shift. People like to just do things and then measure afterwards. And we really have to educate people to plan for measurement. You have to plan ahead to be able to answer the questions in the future. You know, something, you know, the saying that my dad always used to tell me, which is be kind to your future self. And I always try to educate marketers, be kind to your future self. You're going to have these questions three months from now, four months from now, a year from now. And if you don't set up the right data capture, the right investment in measurement and tools to do this analysis across the funnel, when those decisions come, you're going to be in the middle of the ocean on a raft. And then you're going to start searching. And you know you made a good point where people are just like kind of looking everywhere. And it's this frantic search for an answer. And but if you have a culture of experimentation, it's never frantic. You may have serious questions, time-sensitive questions, but you have a rational way with which, with which to answer it. So then it's less stressful. It's less back and forth. When we talk about you know, the power of AI and machine learning to transform our industry, it's about being able to make these decisions faster, more rationally. It's about being able to kind of draw inferences with all this data across all the different channels and simulate what's going to happen rather than to happen. And then when that information of what actually happens comes in, then the work you're doing is about looking at that delta. Okay, we thought this was going to happen. And then this happened and we have the variables that we know impact that. So then now we can more accurately diagnose why something's happening. It's really just a scientific method. It's used in all these other fields, like very serious fields like medicine and because the stakes are high. And I think that those same tools can apply. It's a different thing that we're solving for, but it's the same concepts, the same statistical methods, the same scientific methods, the same tools right? To be able to have, feel much more certain or feel much better or more accurate with the way we're making decisions. But you have to plan ahead. You have to, or else you're really not going to be successful. Be kind to your future self. That's going to be ringing in my head tonight. And for a little while longer, I think you catch it. That's a really good phrase. I'm going to steal that. I hope listeners will too. That is good advice in so many dimensions, but especially when it comes to this sort of field of Data analytics and understanding what is happening, uh, gaining insights from data. You talked about it right at the beginning in terms of having invested in in the right data assets and platforms to actually be able to do this. And that that stuff that takes time that is quote-unquote boring, but uh, it it yields results later on. You were kind to yourselves today, back then. Exactly. 
Ikechi, we're almost at the end. I have two questions left. One is for you to pay it forward. I'm interested in hearing from you. Who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Yeah, I actually have a really good answer for that. And it's somewhat self-serving, but I'll explain to you why. With a lot of the work that we're doing at, at Mindshare, we are really bridging a gap between the way things were done before taking the best practices of that and finding new ways to improve that and sort of take ourselves into the future. And, you know, one of the people that has been instrumental in a lot of the vision that we've had to really use advanced technology to transform the way we make decisions is somebody who I work with named Fabio Giraldo. You know, he leads the advanced analytics practice within my group and we're doing a lot of work with many different specialty groups within the organization to really kind of solve new problems and solve really high value problems. And, you know, I think he'd be a very interesting person to talk to, to dig deeper into some of these things. You know, I'll give an example. You might have seen it in the trades recently, but we just recently launched the impact index, which allows us to use AI to be able to um, understand which publications are toxic and, you know, make help to, you know, help our clients be able to very quickly divert their, their media dollars and, and make better decisions so that they're not you know, perpetuating things that affect our culture through media, uh, prepare the negative aspects of our culture through media. And so you know, Fabio was really involved in a lot of partnership with our content teams, our innovation teams, our invention teams, our strategic teams. And so there's a lot of story. There's a big story there about how to navigate all these different points in the organization to come up with a really interesting tool to transform the way media operates. So that's somebody who I would, you know, I can keep going. We have a carbon calculator you know, that we're using. There's so many things. We, he partners a lot with the Neurolab. So that's somebody who I would, I would want to, to you guys to hear more from because I work with him every day and it's, 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 a, it's really a pleasure. And, you know, his team is doing really cool stuff. Great suggestion. Thank you, Ikechi. I will be speaking to Fabio very soon. Lastly, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Yeah, so you know, I work for Mindshare. So if you you know if you Google Mindshare or go to mindshareworld.com, you can learn more about Mindshare and the stuff that we're doing. You know, me personally, I am not as active on social media, but I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. You just search my name, and there's links to different podcasts I've done, different articles I've contributed to. So you know, that's where you can find a lot of that content. You know, something that I also do is I you know I'm also an adjunct faculty member at Pace University and Fordham University. So there's different events and things that you know that we're doing that you know people can can find out about. But generally, I mean, on LinkedIn is a good place to 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 network with me. So I invite anyone who's interested to learn more about things they've heard today, or you know have ideas, or want to collaborate, or you know want to become a client of Mindshare, whatever that may be. You know, please feel free to reach out, and I will respond. Great. I will put links to all those places in the show notes, listeners. So please go and check it out and do connect with Ikechi. He's a very nice guy, I can promise you. So uh, please go ahead and do that. Ikechi, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics today. I have learned a lot from listening to your ideas, your concepts, and how you go about things at Mindshare, but also your personal approach. And I will definitely be kind to my future self a lot more after listening to this conversation. All the best with your future endeavors. And we look forward to hearing from you again in the future. Thank you for having me. This was fun. It's 
time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. That's 